to sit down. Let me encourage you to do two things. One is to take your Bibles and to turn back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. The page number is page 970. Rachel read it for us earlier, page 970. And the other thing you could do is, if you want to follow along, is to grab hold of the sermon outline that you'll find, I, I trust, has been tucked inside your service order. Uh, this week we come to the end of our series from Matthew 5. I'm breathing a bit of a sigh of relief, really. Uh, if there's one thing we've seen over these uh, past weeks, it's how high Jesus' standards are for his people And I'm breathing a bit of a sigh of relief because I have lots of things to sort out before I'm told anything else uh, to sort out. I wonder if you have felt that same thing as well. I know a lot of you have. Uh, Jesus' standards are very high, but don't misunderstand. Jesus doesn't set extraordinarily high standards as a necessary mark to reach in order to become one of his people. It's not like a high jump that we've got to get that high before we are one of God's people. That is never God's way. A former colleague of mine went to speak at one of the top schools in the country and he told me that there were two boards in the, in the main entrance hall, one listing former pupils who'd gone on to become Olympic gold medals, medalists and the other for former pupils who were Nobel, Peace, uh, Nobel Prize winners. And you see, he said that was the standard for recognition in the school. If you did that, you, you'd, you'd achieve something. Now, frankly, if that was the standard, I'm never going to get on either of those boards. I would never have even got to the school in the first place, unless, of course, they make uh, tiddlywinks an Olympic sport. Uh, Even then, I probably wouldn't win. Now, listen, that is never how it is with God. He never sets a standard for us to jump over in order to be accepted by him. He doesn't accept us based on our achievements or on our performance. Please don't have misheard that as we've been looking through these incredibly challenging words over these last weeks. In fact, with God it's quite the opposite. We are accepted by God not on our performance but on the basis of Jesus' performance. Jesus came to earth to live the perfect life, to die the perfect death on a cross. And so to be accepted by God, all we need to do is repent and believe. That's it. But you see, the point is, once we've done that, once we are his people, then he expects us to aim high. Indeed, then we'll want to aim high out of thankfulness for all that he's done for us. You've done all this for me, Lord, what can I do for you? That's what the true Christian always says. And that is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It is grace, God's free and undeserved gift to us, that is the motivation for living the Christian life, nothing else. And of course, one of the key reasons we'll want to live the way God tells us to live is because once we've understood the cross, once we've understood grace, we know he wants the best for us. See, if Jesus died for me, and he did, if he loves me that much, and he does, then I can be sure that all the other things he tells me to do are for my good. Indeed, as I get to know him better, I discover that following his ways are not only for my good, they bring me freedom and life in all its fullness. That's what this is really all about, you see. This isn't a list of rules to to sort of crush us. This is a way to live as a free person. Now, that is a great surprise for many people I speak to. Often I find people I talk to thinking that following Jesus is restrictive. 
set of rules to live by. It's all about all the things you can't do. Thou shalt not do this, that or the other. You can't do this. You can't do that. But actually, following Jesus gives us freedom. Uh, let me try and illustrate that and then we'll uh, dig into the passage. Um, I don't know whether any of you um, uh, like skiing. I guess some of you do and some of you perhaps have never been. Uh, the first time I ever went skiing, um, the instructor gave me a, a list of rules to learn to ski. I'd never skied before and I put these uh, great big planks of wood on the bottom of my feet and I was all over the place. And all the rules he gave me seemed terribly restrictive. Uh, all the rules he gave me seemed um, to make skiing more awkward, not easier. Benzy knees was one of them. Um, face down the slope. That's the last thing I wanted to do, face down the slope. Keep your shoulders down the slope and lean down the slope. I definitely don't want to do that. And uh, as I was sort of fighting against not only the skis but the instructor, I was all over the place. And I kept falling over. I never got off the nursery slope. But as soon as I started to obey the instructor, obeying the rules, far from finding them restrictive, I found them liberating, gliding down the slope. Uh, the rules gave me freedom, you see, freedom to ski, and then freedom to go all over the mountain. So now if I go, I can go all over the place. It's just wonderful. Now, following God's law gives you freedom. Never freedom to ignore the rules. There are still rules like don't go over the edge. Those are rules, and they are rules to protect you, to keep you safe. But that, you see, is how we need to see God's law. For the Christian, saved by grace, God's law gives me freedom. This is how I should live. Now that, I think, is what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, and, and that is why I want to live this, both because I'm motivated by grace, because Jesus has done all this for me, what can I do for you, Lord, but also because I see he's a good God. And when he tells me to do things, it gives me freedom and joy. Now, this week is no different. Very high standards, but for my good and for the good of others. Uh, this week we learn, if you're following on the, uh, the handout, our first point, there should be no limits to our loving. Look at verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. I don't know what it is about human nature that we uh, can agree that it's good to love people. We may even imagine what it is like to, what, what a wonderful place the world would be if everyone did love everyone else. Have you ever imagined that? And we might sing along with uh, the old Pepsi advert, you know, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Everybody in this part of the church is smiling. Those parts of the church don't know what I'm on about. But you know it, don't you? If I was to sing it, you'd join in with me now, wouldn't you? I said, I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. In our best moments, we'd all like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. We sing it in our hearts, yet no sooner have we sung it than we, we're looking for ways around actually living it. You see, we're just like the Pharisees in that respect. Jesus tells us what they taught in verse 43. Love your neighbour, hate your enemy. Now, as we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this is a corruption of Old Testament law. I guess that most people here, if not everyone, maybe not everyone, but I would guess most people know that God's law teaches us love your neighbour. Now, if you don't know it from the Old Testament, you'll recognise it from Jesus' summary of the law. Remember, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. Love your neighbour. It's Old Testament law. 
But hate your enemy, you won't find that in the law of Moses at all. You'll never find it. So how on earth did the Pharisees, who so loved the law of God, come to that conclusion? Well, remarkably easy, actually. You see, being sticklers for every detail of the law, the Pharisees defined who their neighbour was. See, if I'm going to love my neighbour, I better know who my neighbour is, is what they said. So the Pharisees came to the conclusion that their neighbour was their fellow Jew. And once you've reached that point in your thinking, it's very easy to take the next step. I'm to love my neighbour, my neighbour is my fellow Jew, therefore I'm not obliged to love anyone who isn't a Jew. And once that's established, it's a very short step to verse 43. Love your neighbour, hate your enemy. Now it's obviously wrong, but let's not be so self-righteous and so self-deceiving that we pretend that we don't easily go down the same route. We just change the language. We use phrases like, charity begins at home. Uh, Of course, if we don't love at home, there's no chance we'll love anyone else, really. But let's be honest, when we trot out charity begins at home, we usually mean charity ends at home. It's an excuse not to give to others, isn't it? Not to have to love others. You see, when we start thinking like that, we can soon tut-tut these teachers of the law. But honestly, we can be just as much the Pharisee. That's why Jesus' words are so telling. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, here Jesus is redefining who our neighbour is. In one sentence, he he ends the debate, a debate that was going on all the time in first century um, Israel. He ends the debate on the question, who is my neighbour? He did the same when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. My enemy is my neighbour. As I'm to love my neighbour, then I'm to love my enemy. It's really very simple. Don't waste time working out who you should love. If we're around, love us. Now that is pretty radical, isn't it? And sadly, in pretty short supply, as I've been thinking about this, even between Christians. Now look, Jesus is going to go much deeper than this. He's going to say, love your enemy. But even between Christians... Where is this love? One of the things that saddens me most in this job is is how Christians fail in common decency and good manners. Never mind love. You don't have to be in Christian ministry for long to realise how unkind Christians can be to one another. We are pretty hopeless at loving each other, never mind loving our enemies. I would guess, even at this level, there's a need for us to repent of something, probably right now. I wouldn't be at all surprised if the Lord isn't bringing to mind right now a number of things that we ought to repent of. Perhaps there's a relationship that needs to be sorted out, an apology that needs to be made, a wrong to put right, and that is just with other Christians, before we've even considered loving our enemies. Well, as we go on in this section, we'll see that Once again, Jesus is calling us to go aim higher and go deeper. And his first instruction in verse 44, pray for those who persecute you. Now, most of us are not persecuted. There will be a number here who are facing opposition at work, just because you're a Christian. Uh, Maybe others uh, from your family. Your family are anti-Christian and every time you mention it, they give you a hard time. Uh, You might have even been ostracised by your family and friends. If that is you, Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. And you know, as I read that, my first thought is that seems remarkably 
unpractical advice, but when you think about it, it is remarkably practical. Pray for those who persecute you because praying for them is the first step to loving them. I wonder if you've ever tried it. Praying for someone makes a huge difference. I remember when I first came across this passage and really thought about it seriously, I then realised that I needed to put it to the test. It was years ago now, long before I came here, and he was hardly my enemy, but there was one guy at church who I frequently disagreed with. We always seemed to be, well, shall I say, less than friends. It certainly wasn't a, a happy relationship. So I read this and I began to pray for him. I prayed for him regularly. And our relationship improved dramatically. Now, don't mishear this, because you see, as I thought about it, I think much of it was down to my attitude changing. I was praying for him, but really it was the Lord was doing something in me. I didn't instantly agree with him over everything, but I did begin to see things from his perspective. I wasn't quite so quick to write him off anymore. See, praying for our enemies will change things. And I think it's because of this. It is hard to genuinely and persistently pray for people that you hate. You either stop praying for them or you stop hating them. Have you done that? Have you tried it? Prayer gives rise to love. So pray for your enemies and you'll love your enemies, I think is what Jesus is saying. So there must be no limits to our loving. Uh, love your enemies, then, then love everybody in between enemy and best friend. Secondly, there'll be no doubt about our ancestry when we do that. Look at verse 44. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. See, here is why we're to love our enemies. It's not just because the law says so. Again, it's not just a matter of rules and regulations. It's because behind the law is the lawgiver, the Lord Almighty. And as we've seen over these weeks, the law reflects the character of the Lord... So as I live the law, I'll reflect the character of God. And people will know that he's my father, verse 45. See, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Start living like this and people will say, I know who your father is. When my dad comes to church... Um, as he walks in, people often say to him, I know whose father you are, because me and my dad look ever so alike. He's a really handsome fellow, my dad. And, uh, sorry, I shouldn't have and, um, and people just instantly know who we like, because we've got physical attributes that are the same. Uh, Jesus says, if you love like this, if you love your enemies, people will say, I know who your heavenly father is, because you have spiritual attributes that are the same. Because you see, what we discover here is that our Father in Heaven loves universally. Now, now don't mishear me because that's quite a loaded word. I'm not saying that everyone will be saved. I'm not a universalist. But Jesus does say here, everyone, every day, is on the receiving end of God's love. See, God's love is universal. Look at verse uh, 45. He, God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I've uh, lost count of the times when I've taken a wedding here or in another church and one of the guests has said to me as they're going out, beautiful day, vicar. Ah, the sun shines on the righteous. Have you heard that expression before? 
And I never say it because I don't want to ruin their day, but I always feel like saying, and the unrighteous, because, <laughs> because that's what it says in the Bible, you see. The point is that God gives good gifts to everyone. Whether you are good or evil, you enjoy the sunshine. You don't see this cloud sort of going over evil people, do you? Good or evil, you enjoy the benefits of the rain. So if the sun shines on your wedding day, that doesn't say anything about you. It's just another sign of what a good God we have. God loves universally. The sun shines on everyone. And his rain falls on everyone. And that's what is so special about God's love. It's not that he loves that makes him special. This is a key point. It's not that he loves that makes him special because men and women love What is special about God is that he loves his enemies. So copy God and not man. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, mankind loves with prejudice, the second sub-point in point two. Look at verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Do you see the point? Love isn't peculiar to Christians. Everyone's capable of loving. Families love one another. Friends show love towards each other. Bad people love, is what he says here. We know, we know they do. What do we say? They're thick as thieves. Robbers know how to love one another. See the point? Nothing spectacular about loving those who love you. Oh, that's not difficult at all. Supernatural love is to love those that you don't like. And even more spectacularly supernatural is to love those who really don't like you, to love your enemies. Now, I've been asking myself this week, how much of our Christian love is like this? How much of our loving is actually done to those that we know will love us back anyway? That's not supernatural love. Everybody does that. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours is not Christian. It's just human. Even the pagans do that, verse 47. You see, the challenge here is that we may talk about a church or a fellowship group being loving, but are we really loving supernaturally? You see, it strikes me that what can be seen as a loving group in church, looking out for each other, going the extra mile, really that group can be little more sometimes than an elitist clique. It may be no different to the way pagans love, really. The real test of our loving is how we embrace the outsider, isn't it? See, let me ask you, how does it feel to be on the outside of your group, your fellowship group, this group? Is, it, is your group impossible to break into? or to really feel part of? Let's start tonight. Over coffee. How loving are we? We do forget how remarkably difficult it is to go to a church for the first time. If you're here for the first time, well done, it's very brave to come into a church you've never been in before. So over coffee, are we looking out for people? Drawing them into our group of friends? How many people walk away from a church meeting feeling lonely because no one bothered to talk to them? How many people have been over to, the, to, to coffee time and they've actually hung around for a while but no one's looked out? Nobody's bothered to look for them. 
There's nothing especially Christian about being, being a group of people supporting each other and being mates. That happens at the tennis club that I'm part of. And let me say they were very welcoming and very embracing when I turned up for the first time. That's not especially Christian. That's just being a decent human being, isn't it, you see? End of verse 47, even pagans do that. Isn't this challenging? See, when we say love your neighbours, we can kind of get a, uh, love your enemies, we can kind of get away with it because we probably haven't got any real enemies and so it's not really going to make a lot, a lot of difference to us. But what we're saying is here, what Jesus is saying is here is uh, love your neighbours is uh, as far as loving your enemies, so it's everyone in between, so it's the people that are around us that don't quite fit in. That's how God loves. He loves differently. He loves all, verse 45. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He loves the evil people because he gives them good things. That's the the challenge here, to love everyone, to love the people we don't like, to love those who don't fit in, those who don't wear the right clothes, those who don't display the same social niceties as us to love those who reject us, to love even our enemies. No limits to our loving. Secondly, no doubt about our ancestry. And thirdly, no standard below perfection. See verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, let's not misunderstand this. We must keep this verse in its context. Being perfect doesn't mean never making a mistake in any area of life. Being perfect here simply means loving in an unmistakably supernatural way, loving our enemies, that kind of perfection. I mentioned skiing earlier. One of the things I love about skiing is being high on the chairlift, looking down on others as they're skiing. It's great uh, watching people ski, some of them falling over, that's quite fun. But watching really good skiers, that is amazing. And you can always tell uh, French people or those who've been taught by a Frenchman because their skis are so very close together. Other people, don't, other people tell you not to, not to ski that close together with your, with your skis. I couldn't do it even if I wanted. And I love watching them do it. It's almost as if they've got one ski on. Just fantastic. And you go, ah, oh, it's a Frenchman. Or he was taught by a Frenchman. Look, when we love like this, when we love even our enemies, people will know that we've been taught by Jesus to love. Because no one else loves like this. No one else loves like this. Someone once said this, it's on the, uh, on the sheet and I think it's ever so helpful. To repay good with evil is devilish. So if somebody does a good thing and you repay it with evil, that's like the devil. To repay good with evil is devilish. To repay good with good is human. But to repay evil with good, that's divine. That's divine. That is how God loves And that is how we are to aim to love, to love our enemies. It's a high calling. But as we heard right at the beginning of the service, we have the perfect model to follow. Jesus lived this. He went to the cross for his enemies. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. He prayed for those who persecuted him. On the cross he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus is our perfect example of perfect love. And God the Father loves like this. 
God so loved the world, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And the world, in John's writing, always the world in rebellion to God, those who are his enemies, those who are shaking their fist in the face of God. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So, verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love like this. No, this is not the way we become Christians. We become Christians by trusting in Jesus' death. But as those who have known that love upon us, when we were his enemies, we should love others like that too. And as we live it, others will see that we are children of our heavenly Father. That's verse 45. And you know, I think that to live this would have a most remarkable impact on our community. You know, quite rightly, we talk a lot about evangelism. If we lived this, I'm not sure we'd have to talk about it much anymore. If we loved one another, loved our enemies, loving universally, loving so that others felt accepted, really putting others first in this community of Christchurch forward, then this would be a beautiful place to be. Indeed, everything we did would now be beautified. Our fellowship, our worship, our witness, our daily living, everything, if we love like this. And then, as as unbelievers came in contact with us, they love what they see and they, they long to be part of it. This is evangelistic living. So, verse 44. Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we hear this, we know it's right and we know it's good. We know how good it would be if we lived this way. And yet we cry to you because we know we're sinful. We ask you to forgive us, uh, not just because we fail in this, but because sometimes we can't even be bothered to try and live this way. We ask you to forgive us for the times when we've seen others lonely and on their own and haven't even attempted to reach out a hand of friendship. We ask you to forgive us for the times when we've uh, just been going along our own little way and haven't seen the needy people around us. We ask you to forgive us that as a church family, when we've thought we've been loving, we've just been loving those that we love, those that we like, those that like us. And we ask you to change us. Father, we've been thinking ever since September about the word of God transforming us and not just informing us. May that be true of this most marvellous truth tonight. And as we ask that, we pray, uh, please, that you would enable us to live this way. We thank you for the gift of your spirit, the only one who will be able to change us and help us to live this way. We pray that he would convict us and convince us and change us so um, dramatically that we, not just as individuals, but as a church family, would begin to live this and love one another and love all around us in a quite supernatural way for your praise and glory. Amen.